Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Welcome to a special episode of Children of Song. I'm Brad Newman. Before we get started, a quick producer's note. We recorded this episode last year with Ashley Campbell and the sons of Roy Orbison before Glenn Campbell passed away last August. As you'll see, the next hour is very much a tribute to the rhinestone cowboy and to his good friend, the rock and roll legend, Roy Orbison. Now, on to the show. Welcome to another edition of Children of Song, the podcast that explores what it must have been like growing up surrounded by music. For those of you who are taking this journey with us for the first time, we're speaking with musicians whose parents made a name for themselves. What was it like to be exposed to that kind of fame? We'll hear the stories of the people they met, what they did backstage, and how the music bug ultimately bit them as well. I'm Robert K. Orman, and I'm joined by my producer, Brad Newman. Hey, Brad. Hey, how are you? Brad's here to make me... Make me look good. <laughs> make <laughs> Try. Us, make sure we stay on the right path. As we continue our Nashville swing, we find ourselves atop the Orbison Building, a beautiful penthouse that overlooks Music Row, and we're so excited to be spending time this afternoon with Roy's boys, Roy Jr., Alex, and Wesley. And joining us is Ashley Campbell, the daughter of the legendary Glenn Campbell. So kids of legends here today, folks. We put you guys together because your fathers actually were friends, uh, partly. Um, Glenn sang many of Roy's songs and had hit singles with them. How's your dad doing, by the way, Ashley? Oh, thanks for asking. He, he is, uh, he's unfortunately in the late stages of Alzheimer's. Mm -hmm. So he, he has aphasia. He can't communicate. He can't really understand language anymore. Um, but what's great is that he's, he's in a good mood and he's very happy and content all the time, as opposed to, I've seen, you know, Alzheimer's can go any which way it wants to, and you know, you could be trapped in a in a state of confusion and fear. But he's seems to be kind of coasting along in a state of happiness and and love, and he knows that he's surrounded by people that love and take care of him. That's great. You know, what was he like as a dad? Was he ever there? <laughs> oh, absolutely. He he his you know he made it a point of being there when me and my brothers were growing up, and um, we went out on the road with him sometimes, and obviously we spent a lot of time with him in Branson when he had his theater there. So mm -hmm. we, we, you know, he was very much a part of our lives, and his family was the most important thing to him. Alex, was Roy present for you guys, or was he on the road all the time? Yeah, yeah, our dad would, uh, you know, especially at the point when I was born, which was 75, he was touring um, a little bit less than all the time. And so, yeah, really around. And, uh, and one thing that I've noticed uh, growing up in Malibu, California, is that when we got our dad, we got a lot of him. Mm -hmm. And I've, I've met so many people that were a little aloof where it was like there was two things going on in the house. You know, there was like a superstar and then everything else. And with, with my dad, he was, uh, you know, he was very available. And, uh, and uh, yeah, we had good times. I bet he was sweet. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, that's the underlying thing with Roy Orbison is most people just think there's there's this somber, morose guy, you know, wandering around the house. Uh, all you in know, black. <laughs> all in black, dreaming up, uh, you know, uh, songs that are, you know, apocalyptic love songs or whatever. But he was, uh, yeah, and and really just one of the funniest guys you've ever uh, dealt with, a really uh, good, uh, you know, cynical uh, sense of humor that would just always get you. So we, uh, yeah, we we had that. Did he sing to you around the house, Roy? Or yes. Yeah, he sang to himself when he was, uh, when no one was around, he sang more. So if he was just around me or Alex or Wes, we've all got songs and experiences where he would do his little, and, and uh, the best was when he would sing along with just pop stuff on the radio, mm-hmm. you know, like ABBA or something. A little red Corvette. Yeah, little. He would get in his Corvette and he'd start singing along with Prince. Little red Corvette. He loved that. And <laughs> sing that. We should. We'd be recording that if he was around now. But. Really? Yeah. How about you, Ashley? Did Glenn sing and play around the house? He was such a good player. Yeah, I mean, we had guitars in every room, pretty much. Um, and yeah, he was always just singing something or. Yeah, <laughs> it's just kind of music has just been completely in our lives. At what point did you know you were going to follow in his footsteps and become a musician? So um, my mom started me and my two brothers, Cal and Shannon, on piano when we were probably about in first grade. Um, but it was, you know, I never really thought I would do music for a living until, um, actually, in, until I was in college. I started playing guitar when I was 15, um, and I wanted to be an actress. <laughs> <laughs> I was really into musical theater, and so I went to college in Malibu, actually, at Pepperdine, and I was a theater major. And um, every role I got in the theater was because I could play an instrument or sing. And when I was a junior, I got into a play where they needed someone to learn banjo. And I said, well, hey, I'd love to. I'm pretty good with music. So my Pepperdine actually bought me my first banjo and paid for my first couple lessons. And I absolutely fell in love with banjo, and I started getting into bluegrass music. And um, then when I graduated in 2009, my dad was going on tour to Australia and New Zealand, and I asked if I could just tag along for fun as a vacation. And he said, yeah, but hey, why don't you play banjo on Gentle in My Mind? And then it turned into his um, music director, TJ, going, ooh, ooh, I've always wanted someone to play string parts on a keyboard. Can you do that too? And I was like, yeah, sure, I guess. (laughs) So I I did that whole tour with them. That was my first introduction to playing live shows. And so my first actual big show was the Auckland State Theater in New Zealand. (laughs) Wow. That's (laughs) kind of trial by fire. Yeah. One of the things that I thought was interesting um, in reading about you is is the first time that you were sort of in awe of, of your father. Can you recall watching him backstage one time and you kind of got it? Um, I I wish I had better memories of of his musicality when I was little, but I guess I just kind of didn't understand the magnitude of how amazingly talented he was because he was just dad. And I wasn't exposed to too many other musicians and things like that of his caliber. So I was just like, oh, he's just great at what he does. That's just what dad does. Um, so it wasn't really until I, I started really getting into music and going, wow, this is really hard. <laughs> and um, watching YouTube videos of him from the Good Time Hour and things like that, that I went, oh, my gosh, I'm a huge fan of my dad. Um, like in um, specific memories um, in the kitchen in Malibu, when I when it was after he had gotten diagnosed with Alzheimer's, and I was trying to, um, you know, pique his interest, so I was showing him YouTube videos of himself, 
and seeing him light up and and me going, look how cool this is, Dad, look what you did. And he would just go, oh, yeah, where'd you get that? What is this? And Because he didn't ever use computers or anything, so he was amazed that someone would put that stuff right. up online. <laughs> was Roy encouraging to you, Wesley, about picking up an instrument and and learning to play? In? I, I think he uh, really wanted me to do anything but music. I think he wanted me to uh, have a proper career in, uh, you know, be a doctor or a lawyer, some, something uh, uh, with a good salary and all, and uh, that you could probably leave uh, uh, the, the work when you left the office type of thing, you know. Um, but uh, when I did get a guitar, uh, probably on my 18th birthday, um, it was a collective effort of the family, uh, and because uh, I'd been asking for one. <clears throat> And once I did get a guitar, then he was encouraging and showed me a, a few basic chords, you know. And uh, of course, I wanted to to play rock and roll straight away. So um, he said, "Oh, well, all that stuff is is just these first position chords moved up the neck." And so he showed me the, the octave from the first positions, and he said, "This is how you build those rock and roll chords." So, huh. so that was really helpful. Roy, tell, tell us about the connection that these two legendary artists had with each other, Roy and Glenn. They toured together, right? Well, one that I didn't know until I was driving here and did a quick uh, check of some info was that uh, Glenn Campbell was born April 22nd, 1936, and Roy Orbison was born April 23rd, 1936, within 24 hours of each other. That, that was striking to me because... I met Glenn Campbell in about 1974 when I was really little, but already I thought of him as a young upstart. He was pretty well established already, but but we saw everyone as they were kind of coming up. And so I thought he was kind of a new guy. All these years later, you know, he, he's a, he's an American legend, and uh, and it and uh, so, so they met. Uh, Roy liked Glenn's voice. He liked the smoothness of Glenn's voice. I think in like '66 or '67, Glenn did "Only the Lonely," mm-hmm. and then he came back and did "Crying." And there's lots of TV shows that he did Orbison songs. He came to see Roy quite a bit. And the time I met him in '74, he was opening the show. I think it was in in Las Vegas. Mm-hmm. So we would. And um, I remember I liked Rhinestone Cowboy, and uh, still do and uh, Southern Nights and some of those. Mm-hmm. But, uh, but Roy liked Glenn and they were, they were friends and then Glenn had such a great smooth voice and he loved Roy. As we all did. <laughs> <laughs> Ashley, you have a song about uh, your dad that I was quite moved by when I first heard it and it was your single and I wonder if you'd play a little bit of it for us. Well, he's always been so supportive of me and all of, and my brothers and everyone, um, you know, like I have a specific memory just when, when I was little, like I was really embarrassed to sing in front of him and I was in Branson, Missouri in our house. And I, I told him I wanted to sing the national anthem at his show. Um, and he said, great, I can't wait to hear it. You want to sing for me? And I said, yeah, but you have to stand outside the door with the door cracked and I'm going to hide behind the bed. <laughs> I must've been like, six or seven years old, this little <laughs> mousy voice. <laughs> um, but he was just so proud of me and encouraging and my whole life. And then, um, so I wrote this song, Remembering, for my dad after he had Alzheimer's. This was right after the tour ended and um, he couldn't um, continue touring anymore and performing. 
and I was still living at the house with my mom and dad helping take care of him. And I started just thinking of riffs and stuff, and I just... I came up with that riff. And um, these words just came to me. I was sitting in the living room in front of the fireplace, and he was in the kitchen kind of wandering around. And so I, I, I just thought, oh, my gosh, I know the time is going to come very soon where my dad is not going to know my name, and he's not going to really look at me with recognition. Um, but I know music really gets to him, and so I wanted to write something that would be able to reach him even when words couldn't. And um, so that's where this song came from. I wanted to, him to know that I would always be there for him and this, let this music kind of envelop him. Um, and then when my parents moved to Nashville, um, about a year after I did in 2013, um, I did a show at the basement, and I played this song, My Dad Came, and this was one of the last public shows he was able to go to before we kind of decided he should probably not go out in public so much um, for his dignity and things like that. Um, so he was at the basement sitting in the front row, and I played this song for him, and it was really hard not to cry because he was looking right at me, and, um, and everyone was just silent as the grave, like, in the entire room because they knew he was sitting there watching that, and it was such an emotional moment. And, every, and no one even clapped at the end. It was just, like, silence. And then he stood up, looked around the room, and went, that's a good song. <laughs> <laughs> and so that meant a lot to me. But um, would you like me to play some of it? Yeah. Four years old running up the stairs to your bed. Thunder rolls and I pull the covers over my head. Say it's just a storm, enjoy the show You take me to the window and you show me that it's beautiful Never had to ask you to sing for me It's just the way you put me at ease Bone for bone we are the same fails to get to me. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks. Man, that is a great song. Alex, um, Roy had a, some terrible tragedy in his life, um, losing his first two boys and all. Do you think that colored how, uh, what kind of a parent he was to you? Yeah, I mean, there's no way you can go through uh, those kind of things uh, and not have it shape your life and uh, I think that uh, his attitude was, he was so centered in his faith, frankly, that, uh, you know, I, I don't think that uh, I have that kind of resilience or, or how he... Uh, yeah, how, how could he you ever go through that? How yeah. he maintained it, 
but uh, I do know that uh, that you know his focus and his lessons to us and uh, and even you know um, a little known fact was that my brother's uh, my my dad's brother Grady Lee had passed away uh, before I was born, and I believe it was 1973, and uh, and. He, my dad tried to impart on us as brothers um, that you never know when your brother's not going to come home one day. And so you want to leave each other as friends each time. And so when we would get into rows with each other, uh, he would really sit us down and make sure that we knew the... Um, we knew the actual facts of the way that life was, and uh, that's something that I've always carried with me is to, you know, try not to have problems with each other that last uh, overnight or whatever. Try to get through whatever it is uh, before you go to bed. Wesley, tell me about Roy Orbison's hobbies. Oh, model airplanes yeah. uh, all the time. Uh, he, uh, <clears throat> one of the last times that I saw him with a plane, uh, he and his friend Benny, um, the bus driver uh, and road manager for a bit, I think, um, they had this really terrific, I think it's a F-15 or something, it was a jet, a, a, a model jet airplane with a real little jet engine in it. That was just fascinating to me that they made such a small little jet engine, but uh, they had uh, crafted little little caricatures of themselves. They, I don't know, they uh, had one, uh, the pilot had little shades on and the, the black hair, of course, and uh, the, uh, the co-pilot had the frizzy gray curly hair to kind of look like Benny. And uh, so it was, it was a big, big day uh, to get to go out with the, the guys, you know, uh, and fly this plane. And they, uh, sure enough, he would torque the engine and the little plane would it sit there and so it uh, takes off in the sky you know just lovely and makes a big old turn and goes out toward the horizon and uh, I see Benny with his controller and he's like Houston we have a problem <laughs> <laughs> and sure enough the plane just went out of sight and crashed into the trees and uh, so we went on a reconnaissance mission and I guess the thing shattered into you know little micro fragments those guys called each other the uh, called themselves the wrong brothers of flight <laughs> uh-huh. that's good the wrong brothers of flight that was their moniker yeah and uh, dad was the west coast division and benny was the, right. the southern division and, and benny actually was married to gene shepherd yes uh, i knew forever. benny very well mm-hmm. great great character of our lives Roy, when when he when Roy uh, Orbison was in the studio working on something, would he share that with you? What his or would he leave his work at work? Or would he bring home tapes and say, "Listen to this"? Or, um, yeah, he he didn't leave it there because he was always working. Um, he was always so. If he got an idea, he would be reading about. It would show up in the next song. He included us more than he probably should have when I look back at it. I go, whoa, he, was, he, would really, he would really heed our advice, all three of us, and my mom. Um, as children, I mean, he would really children, bounce out. And, and would he write like quickly? That? How quickly, you know, would some of these tunes come out of him? Well, that's what I'm saying. There wasn't a dividing line like that. He, he was always in creative mode, and it was kind of like 
as, as he said it, you know, um, the good songs took 15 minutes and the bad ones took six months. So he would be working, you know, gestating these songs, and then they would come out in a little flash of brilliance. And uh, now he wouldn't tell us when he was going to do that, when it was going to, you know, when it was what he was going to do. He would come out with a different way of singing something that, you know, the people in the control room, the eyes would pop. And and I that's when the magic was there for me, too. I would have to wonder, did he plan this out, or is he just winging this and blowing us all away with this, this little tremolo thing he did or a little a different way of pronouncing the word um those are his secrets he did that that part is still very mysterious but he would work on things constantly constantly when anything he heard anything he saw and it it didn't just have to be music it could be um a really great billiard game that he saw geometry or stuff mm-hmm. you know it came from strange you know places who else was like that was bill monroe mm-hmm. the bluegrass guy he, he heard music in horses hooves mm-hmm. and just whatever you know kind of thing. Ashley, do you remember being around famous people when you were a kid? Were there like stars at the house and stuff? Um, I wouldn't remember because I would have been very little, but like my mom tells stories of when they first got married and moved to Phoenix, where, where I was raised. Um, like Mick Fleetwood would come hang out. He'd show up at the house in a, in a limousine and they'd go out all night and <laughs> There's this one story, I hope I get it right, but like um, she's a newly married woman, you know, and my dad was into drugs and alcohol then and you know so he would go out with Mick Fleetwood and this one time they went out and they they were doing some drugs and stuff they got back early in the morning and and my mom was like sweeping or something and she came out with a broom and Mick Fleetwood thought she was gonna beat him with the broom (laughs) for taking her husband out (laughs) and he like ran away (laughs) Um, but yeah, when I, when my dad had his theater in Branson, especially, I remember being around all those Branson cats, like, um, the Oak Ridge boys and Andy Williams, um, was a big one. He's wonderful. Um, I love Jim Stafford. That's probably why I wanted to be an actor, partly because I loved his comedy so much and I wanted to do comedy. And so Mm -hmm. that's kind of what I got into when I moved to LA, but, um, yeah, and, and Mel, um, Mel Tillis must have been around then. Mel too. Tillis, mm-hmm. Tony Orlando, um, Wayne Newton, and um, many others, I'm sure. Um, but I do remember one time in high school, <laughs> um, got a phone call, and I answered Campbell Residence, and he's like, "Hi, is Glenn there?" And I said, "Oh, may, uh, he's not here right now. He's golfing. May I ask who's calling?" This is Willie Nelson. <laughs> and as a high schooler, I was just like, oh, my gosh. He's, I'll have him call you back, Mr. Nelson. <laughs> I was floored. <laughs> Roy, I love the story about uh, the, the stranger coming up to the house. Yes. Uh, you have to tell that one. Okay. Now, that, that was real. Um, we, lived, uh, we lived in Hendersonville next door to Johnny Cash. And on a, on a busy day, 3,000 people a day would come by to visit our house, just regularly, normally. So we would have to wait to pull and in our own driveway. Tour buses, yeah. yeah the, and um, we, we lost about eight dogs. We'd let the dog out, and the fans would steal our dogs. So we had to, you know, eventually we had to have people watching. So the dogs, they couldn't run free in the yard because people just open their door, jump in, never see the dog again. They wanted Roy Orbison's dog. Um, but um, so so I would look really carefully. I was a little suspicious when someone pulled in that driveway. You know, we would run for the house. And uh, in this one case, I was playing in the back of the yard uh, by the swimming pool. And anyone back there would be dangerous. You know, they they knew there was just people knew not to come around there. So a man uh, started coming, and he looked homeless. He looked really uh, disheveled, unkempt, 
and crazy hair, and he was walking around the corner, and I ran in the door and slid the sliding glass door and locked it on him and started screaming, Mom, Mom, a burglar, a burglar. And, uh, and the guy was looking in the windows, and she came, and it was Bob Dylan. <laughs> so that must have been around the time of the Nashville skyline. That would have been around 76 or something, right. 75. And, uh, and so we always had people dropping by the house uh, unexpectedly. Um, but Hendersonville wasn't quite like uh, Malibu, so it would be Chris Christopherson, Waylon Jennings, our granddad. And what was it like uh, that interacting with those folks? I mean, how inspiring was that, or did they just become people? Um, it was normal. It was pretty normal. You do learn that. You do learn that early on. My take was that people are people. And I remember I met someone, and they'll remain unnamed, but that was just a total jerk. And I had told my mom, I was like, "This guy is." A jerk, you know, I'll say it. And uh, my mom was like, no, he did all these great things. And I just remember thinking, okay, well, there's doing great things and then there's being interactive and being nice. <laughs> there's, <laughs> you know, you can do both because I've seen my dad do it. <laughs> and, uh, you know, I've, I know it can be done. And so uh, I remember thinking very early too, like, okay, yeah, this is, there's great people that, uh, you know. But for that, instance, I knew, I knew Paul McCartney eight years before I was on an airplane and listening to a Beatles thing and opened the thing, said, look, Mom, there's that guy from the party. <laughs> it was eight years later, you know, and I didn't know, you know, so I knew him as a person before I knew the Beatles, and uh, that's nice. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I have a little story about that kind of thing where you need to just, pe people are people. It doesn't matter what you've done or who you are. Don't you know who I am? Like, um... My dad gave me some advice. Um, this was while we were on tour, so he had Alzheimer's at the time, and so it was kind of rare to get, like, a real eye contact conversation with him. Um, and we were at dinner one time, and, and he, it was towards the end of the tour, and, and he was just sitting there, and all of a sudden he looked right at me and said, how's your music going? And this, was, this surprised me, and, and I said, well, it's great. Um, going good. I'm just writing songs, and I think I might move to Nashville after the tour. And, um, and he said... All right, and yeah, and I said it's great, um, and I jokingly said I'm gonna be a superstar, and I like joked about it, and he looked, got really serious, and looked at me and said, "Be a super person, and the superstar will follow." That's great. And I really took that to heart. <laughs> you write a song. Yeah, about that's that. a quotable quote if there ever was one. Yeah, that's beautiful. Wesley, uh, can you and and Roy remind us of some of the iconic riffs on some of these Royal Risen songs? You were playing a little bit of Pretty Woman as we opened the show. And yeah. That, that, everybody knows that riff, you know. But they don't know it's in 6-4. <laughs> Four, five, six. Four, five, six. So it's in 5-6. I always uh, mention that, not that that's uh, useful at anything. And actually, um, another totally unknown fact is that in the 50s, uh, you know, our dad got his first gig really... Um, with a song called Ubi Doobie, and he was known as like what would be now thought of as a Steve Ray Vaughan style Texas guitar player, and he waited side stage uh, for uh, uh, the guys who were singing Ubi Doobie, which is Wade Moore and Dick Penner. And uh, he waited on side stage and said, You know what? You guys need a lead guitar player. 
They said, we do. Do you know any? And he goes, I do. <laughs> I can go get my guitar. And, uh, and uh, Roy was telling me that he's uh, he's been having fun with some Ubi Doobie, so maybe we'll yeah. listen to a little... Let's do some Ubi Doobie. The solo on that Ubi Doobie, Roy would have played something like this about the time he was uh, 17 years old. And then it ended up on Sun Records 242, Ubi Doobie. And Which it, would have been incredibly groundbreaking at the time. Yeah, 1956. This was one of the first rock and roll guitar solos, period. Uh, only Carl had really done one before, and it was kind of like... So that was a little improv version of something he did 60 years ago. Yeah, that and, and Rockhouse were the two, the two real yeah. sun. Yeah, and, and so Ubi Doobie puts him, uh, him and Carl as the first two rock and rollers at Sun Records who, who played guitar, wrote their own songs, sang them. Carl um, Perkins we're talking about. Yeah, Carl Perkins, you know. Um, yeah. that, that part of uh, Sun history is pretty obscured now that Elvis was, was, of course, the first star, but he didn't write songs and play that much. Johnny was country. So after Carl, there was Roy. Yep. <laughs> but there were little riffs in there were little riffs in Blue Bayou. The there was little parts of Blue Bayou. There's little riffs that he threw in. There's the there's the great one of. Um, there's riffs all through Roy's songs. Uh. <laughs> when did you realize how famous he was when you were growing up? Because, you know, he's your dad, and you know he's great, and there's people coming by the house that are iconic figures. But when, was there a we went moment? To, we went to London, and, and there was the shows, a lot of the shows in the States, you could kind of go back and forth between the security line or in and out of the venue pretty late before the show started. And then you, we were bunked up side stage or in the soundman booth and then you always had to know before pretty woman started playing or if you heard it you just run for the car because if dad went for the car and you weren't in it then you had to wait and get a ride later because they weren't going to wait around and he had told us because it was just people would just tear off all his clothes and stuff but um early in the day i went outside and there was like these heavy metal doors and one of the security guys said hey don't go out that door and i thought you know, all right, fine, you know, and, and I'd kind of looked at him questioningly, and he had told me, if that door shuts and I'm not standing right here, I won't be able to hear you pounding on the door. And he goes, you don't want to be out there for your own safety. He goes, the, all the people out there, he goes, there's a huge line all the way around the block and all these people are waiting for your dad. And you have no idea what they'd do to you if they had, you know, if you, and then uh, a short while after someone had gotten trampled at, at trying to get in a show or something and uh and, and when it got serious like that i had thought okay you know this is uh that's a whole different level of uh of fanaticism versus uh having the occasional dog disappear at the house or whatever mm -hmm. you know when it was a security issue i started realizing okay there's a other level of uh he's uh, a big he's a big guy yeah, yeah <laughs> and i didn't know any different i thought everyone was famous because Johnny was famous, we were famous, and I just didn't know the math. Yeah, when your next-door neighbor's Johnny Cash. <laughs> yeah. So I thought, I, I honestly, yep. it was a long time. I, I was so immersed in it that I just thought, I didn't realize we were famous because I thought 
the plumber must have 10,000 people who love his plumbing. Yep. <laughs> yeah, my dad. I thought everyone was famous. We actually, do you, did, do you, do you, if in your own career, do you feel like having someone so famous as a parent, is that a hindrance or a help or a blessing or a curse? I mean, do you feel like you're in the shadow of? Um, well, I don't feel like I'm in the shadow because I'm not trying to be my dad. I'm not claiming to be the best guitar player in the world. I'm not... I don't think I'll ever sing or play as well as he did, but I'll sing and play as well as I do. And that's, you know, take it or leave it, you know. Like, um, I've learned ever since I started really getting into my own music and finding my own voice that I don't have to try and sound like anybody else because no one else is going to sound like me, you know. So I try to get comfortable within my own skin and my own voice and and my own sound. And um, I look at having a famous father as, um, as a blessing and that, um, you know, that his fans will hopefully like what I do and because of the love that they have for him. But I've always made a very big point of never using that as a crutch. Mm -hmm. Um, it's great sometimes to get your foot in the door, but it's, um, I like this quote. It's maybe who, you know, that gets you there. It's what, you know, that keeps you there. So it's what it really comes down to what I can do and and how hard I work. It has nothing to do with my dad, but it might help me along the way at some points. Mm-hmm. So it's just a huge blessing to have that kind of influence in my life. Do you, do you have a favorite Glenn Campbell song that you that you sing in your in your act? Um, I love playing Gentle on My Mind because that's how I got started into music, playing with my dad. And obviously it's a banjo song, so it's really fun to play. Love John Hartford. Um, so I play that one a lot in shows. I'm actually I'm playing the Opry on um, Saturday, and I'm going to play that one for the Opry, and then um, that'll be fun. And I just did a recording of Wichita Lineman, just kind of for fun. I was in my Dobro Player's studio, and we recorded it. And I said, why don't we just put that out as a single while I'm making my album, just to have something out. Um, and I did that with my godfather, Carl Jackson, who used to be my dad's banjo player. I love Carl Jackson. He's such a sweet man. Oh, he's the best. I was just I didn't playing know he was with your him godfather. last night. Yeah, he's my godfather. Cool. Um, yeah, I was just playing with him last night at the station inn. He's a sweeter. He can sing harmony too. Oh my gosh, he's amazing. Uh, he's the best. It's I'm so blessed to have him in my life too, especially um, now that my dad's kind of not so prominent in my life as a as a father figure. Um, Carl has kind of taken over that role and really been mentoring me and helping me, so I'm, I just feel so incredibly blessed to have him oh, in my yeah. life. Oh, yeah, there's nobody finer. He's such a good man. Uh, Roy, tell me about the airplane flight with Glenn. Oh, well, 2006, that was the last time that I met him, and uh, looking back, it was another really fortunate thing. We were We were... In the airport in Cleveland, uh, we were doing the uh, 2006 Rock and Roll Hall of Fame thing that Glenn showed up. He, he supported my dad that uh, that recently. Uh, seems recent. I guess it's 10 years ago now. But the plane uh, was delayed, so we were stuck in a little um, coffee shop in the airport. And, yeah, I got to sit with him for three hours. And um, we talked about Orbison. We talked about uh, when we met. And... Uh, and mostly, he was a he was a one man show by then. He was in a good mood. He was just doing all the talking and just took over the conversation. Uh, and whoever I was with, we just sat quietly and it was a Glenn Campbell show for about three hours. <laughs> cool. <laughs> yeah, and he he was just in a really great mood. And uh, 
and and I kept on thinking, does he does he really get that I'm Roy Orbison Jr.? Or is he just this nice to everybody? He's just talking like we were backstage, uh, just really, you know, because the other people, I don't know who they were. I think it was actually Billy Burnett and a couple of other people that he knew. We all looked up to him, and uh, I just remember the vibe of it more than anything, and uh, and how good it was to kind of book in to see. Like I said, when I when I knew him as a kid, he was the guy opening the show, and when I saw him there. I, I realized, you know, how great it was to see someone become uh, become a legend, become an American icon, and and just how good he was. He was and very it, open, and he mm-hmm. still looked good. Mm-hmm. He, he looks, he still looks great. I'm sure he, I'm he sure looks that never left him. Right man, now, he the looks, man so looks good amazing. Still. <laughs> and uh, we were at lunch one time, and he started babbling on about his facelift, and then he went. Wait a minute! You're a reporter. I shouldn't be saying this. <laughs> that's the way I felt. That's you the way only I ever felt had one. This, <laughs> that's the way I felt at, at our little thing. I was. Does he know? Does he? He just talking just to us, chatting away. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And we were an audience of three. <laughs> yeah. My mom and me and Wesley, Billy Burnett. Did, did, everybody wanted a piece of Roy. Did Did you resent the fans at all, or feel like that they were trying to take him away from you? Or, oh gosh, um, <clears throat> you know. I uh, was raised by my grandparents uh, directly across the street from from Johnny Cash, and Dad was next door to Johnny. Johnny's parents were next door to to us, and uh, so the tour buses and all, yeah, that was more of an inconvenience uh, coming and going to the grocery store or to get to school or those types of things. But uh, <clears throat> you know, like in school and stuff. Uh, most people were familiar with Johnny Cash being from Hendersonville and uh, uh, were more interested that I was his neighbor, you know, than, <laughs> than who my dad might be. Uh, so n- not so much. Uh, I didn't interact with him, uh, you know. Did he, Alex, he dro- am I right? He drove you to school? Yeah, yeah. I, mean, I find that hard to believe. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When he was around, and uh, we have a great memory of uh, he had this like he had bought this Ferrari, and then uh, the same kind of Ferrari, very immediately after, had become this thing for Magnum PI. So we had that like '80s uh, awesome 308 or whatever it was, and we were uh, we were late, we were late, and we needed to get to the bus. And for whatever reason, my dad had a ticket that he didn't show up on from touring. And the, well, the police saw us, man. They lit up the lights before they even turned around. It was like he knew. And the guy pulled over, and, and my dad did like a Jedi thing where he just looked the guy in the eye, and he said, hey, I'm going to drop my kitties off at the bus, and then I'll come in and talk to you guys. And the guy just went, Okay, Roy. <laughs> He's just looking at my dad in a supercharged Ferrari and like, okay, yeah, well, let's let's do it your way. And uh, yeah, yeah, he was, uh, yeah, he was hands on. It was, he, you know, he was a tinkerer, and so like he was interested in the mechanics of things. And so when it came like time to have a problem at school or whatever the the thing of the minute was, you know, um, the general rule of thumb was that he toured and then you had 24 to 36 hours of kind of quiet time where you didn't want him to make a lot of noise near his room where he would just catch up and sleep. And then, you know, you got to give him like 15 minutes when he comes out of the room. But then after that, it's on. You get full, full-fledged mm-hmm. uh, dad stuff. So His death was so sudden. Mm-hmm. Um, 
what, how did that affect you? Can you remember the impact of it? I mean, I think that's something you never forget. I, mean, I know, and I, you know, I got to say goodbye to both of mine. Yeah. You know, but you didn't. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and it it uh, it was so unexpected. So you know, yeah, my dad who moved to California and started eating salmon and couscous and all this crap, and you know, no more butter, and he's using olive oil, and uh, and he had returned back to his like, you know, 178 pound. Uh, post Beatle tour weight, you know, which was like his, you know, not too thin and not too heavy, just like the guy seemed like a teenager. Mm -hmm. And so to have him pass away just at that moment was definitely a shock. And uh, it just rocks you. You know, it took me 16 years, I remember. It took me 16 years to hear a Roy Orbison song on the radio and not have it just tear me apart for the day, you know. So... It really, uh, yeah, it really does, uh, you know, granted I was 13 or whatever when he passed away, but I, I, I don't care what age you are, you lose your dad, it's just a whole different ball game. Uh, and to, you, you know, it just is one of those things where you hang up the phone at 7 p.m. and you get a phone call at 5 a.m. or something, and you're like, no, you know, I just talked to the guy who was just here. Right. And it really, uh, yeah, it really does, uh, it changes you and uh, and losing someone as an adult has a whole different uh you know effect or whatever you, you know the understanding i guess might be there for someone you know we lost barbara 2011 you know lose your mom's the same thing but we were there and she was sick and and she went to a place where she wasn't in pain and that's such a different thing than having this sprightly guy who's you know is all over the radio and all over everywhere, and you have teenagers pulling up and going, hey, it's Roy, and freaking out, you know, and, and uh, it's, uh, yeah, it's a whole different thing, I think. Ashley, you have gotten to say goodbye, I mean, in a, in a fashion. <laughs> uh, is that a comfort to you that, that? Um, yeah, absolutely. Um, when my dad was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, it was, we kind of found out as much about it as we could, and so that going on that goodbye tour with him we, you know, it was about, spent about two years on the road. Mm -hmm. I remember. Um, and when you know that this time is limited, it makes it so much more precious and it makes you pay so much more attention and kind of log those memories away and cherish them and, and cherish that person. So um, I feel very blessed in that I was able to have that time with my dad and to know that that was the time, that's the only time I was going to get. Mm -hmm. um, and I still feel blessed that we, we still have him around, um, even though I, I don't love the situation at all, but um, I know um, one of the very difficult things with Alzheimer's um, is you have to kind of, it could, it could take one year, it could take 10 years to, you know, to end a life. And, you know, you just, you have that much time to deal with it. And so when it's, when it drags on um, and the person is just, kind of gone but they're still there you have to learn to live with that grief and you kind of make peace with it you learn to keep it like a status quo you're kind of okay with it you're okay talking about it um, I mean everyone's different but that's how I am I'm kind of just internalizing and dealing with it but um, I know that when he does pass away it's going to be just as devastating as if he passed away like that without ever having had Alzheimer's it's just going to be horrible like you don't losing a father. So I was, you know, I've had a lot of time to think about losing my dad and 
I know it's going to hit me like a freight train no matter what. You guys have a very, very strong uh, urge to preserve and continue your father's legacy. And tell us about some of the projects that you, we were talking about the Black and White Knight project and some of these things that you guys you put together several box sets and talk a little bit about how important it is to, to, that people remember Roy Orbison. Well, that's one of his better quotes is when they, someone asked him how he wanted to be remembered, he just simply said, I would like to be remembered. You know, that's, that, would, that would have been enough. And, uh, you know, one, one thing, you know, Barbara was totally healthy. So my mom's this radiant, just, you know, force of uh, nature. She certainly was. <laughs> and, uh, and then she has cancer and she's gone six months later. It's such a trip. It's, and so after that, we realized, you know, life's too short. That was one thing that when we had all finally, you know, got our wits about us and a little time had passed was, uh, you know, that, that. We better do this now. We better do this now. And, uh, and. In a way, the things that we were left were like, uh, they're like presence. And uh, it gives us something to do to cope with the grief. And, uh, you, you know, when, when um, cause uh, I wasn't involved, I, I played drums forever and was in bands in Hollywood and stuff. And, uh, and so, and, and Roy was here and Wesley and I had moved back to Nashville and we looked through all the stuff and, and, it just seemed like it was going to be so fun to do, you know, the uh, the going through and seeing what video assets matched up in the home videos and uh, you know, unreleased demos, unreleased songs. We Pictures. Found, found an unreleased record from 1969 that we put out last year. Mm -hmm. um, and that's just superb. And so to find stuff like this and then the, uh, coming out February 24th, I think, the Friday, the uh, is uh, the Black and White Night 30th anniversary. So we found a, um, a bunch of home videos of those guys backstage. And yeah, for those of you who don't know, this was an all-star concert that Roy was the centerpiece of, that a who's who of music is yeah, there. Yeah, literally <laughs> T-Bone Burnett, uh, Bruce Springsteen, uh, Bonnie Raitt, Katie Lang, Elvis Costello, the TCB band backing up... Uh, my, you know, as the band, and then J.D. Salder rehearsed the background singers, and Jackson Brown was in that, and Jennifer Warren, and uh, and uh, it just an incredible, uh, incredible preliminary show. We went through, and uh, we found in, in between the songs, you know, my dad and Bruce hugging and stuff, and so we recut the show to include all these uh, in betweens, and they uh, played five songs afterwards that that no one had realized, and so we uh, we added that and. Uh, we're, we have a motion picture in the works that we've, uh, w you know, worked on the story. And we had uh, the guys who wrote Stand By Me come up with this incredible uh, screenplay that uh, that we're working on getting in production right now. And, and, uh, and you know, the movie thing's funny because my dad signed a contract in 1965 with MGM mm -hmm. Records to do five films. And then uh, the first of which was called Fastest Guitar Alive. And the Roy Orbison story is in the contract. So since 1965, this movie's been on the way. <laughs> the reaction from those other artists around your father is, is incredible, though. The yeah. reverence. The, the, you, yeah. you can really see it in their eyes. And, and it, it, it's eerie, kind of, because you can almost get a sense that... 
subconsciously they may know he may not be there. And yeah. it's funny, it was only a yeah. few months after that that he passed yeah. away, right? Yeah. But that started with the Beach Boys in 63. <laughs> the, yeah. You know, and the Beatles and the Stones and Jimmy Page and Led Zeppelin, all the way through Chris Isaac and Katie Lang and uh, Glenn Danzig, you know, and everything in between. And we got to see Tom Jones do like Glenn Campbell, and he had, he had a hit, and then his second thing would be a Roy Orbison cover till he got to that third hit. And Tom Jones is a legend in his own right, too. Tom Jones is another one. To, to see this man grow up has been magnificent. I, 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 and I, I think that... Uh, so I think that these people all have these individual experiences, and uh, when we go into these meetings with business people, they're like, how is Roy Orbison relevant to young people today? And Roy Jr. always says, you know, heartbreaks are in real time. So someone right now is getting their heart broke. When you listen to music, you need that kind of stuff. And so you tend to veer back toward some of my dad's stuff or stuff from that era. And so um, actually we released the, uh, the never seen before uh, rehearsal footage of Bruce and all these guys, you know, c- coming up with the dynamics of the show. And you can really see people, uh, they knew this stuff, you know, like inside and out. And there was... Uh, yeah, everyone was just really, really flattered, and you could see even my dad makes a mistake, and and uh, Bruce was like, "Oh no, that was that was me," and my dad said, "No, no, no, you're exactly right. That was me. We're going to do this four more times, and we'll come into the solo and see these, uh, yeah, to see all those legendary people." Uh, and I guess we don't think of these legends as having their own lives and experiences, uh-huh. you know. But, you know, Bruce clearly stated that sitting in the dark listening to the Roy Orbison songs. Oh, you can hear Roy Orbison in Bruce's music. Yeah. You can. Yeah. Ashley, when you want to, to say somebody to, to know how great Glenn Campbell was, is there, is there a certain record of his that you would go to and say, listen to this? Absolutely. <laughs> what is it? It's um, the Jimmy Webb Glenn Campbell reunion album. That's my all time favorite album of his. Um, and Jimmy Webb wrote. By the time I get to Phoenix and Wichita, Wichita linemen. linemen. Oh, so many of them. Uh, could you play a little bit from that? Is there anything that you know that you could sing for us? She does Wichita linemen. I do. Mm. It's, it's tough on this guitar. This is an old one. It doesn't have a scoop neck. Let's see where I do it. Sorry. <laughs> Thank you. That was good. Thank you very much. Very Pretty voice. Um, there is one song from it. Let's see if I can remember how to play it. Let's see. Um, let's see. Maybe it would be just D or something. Yeah. Sweet darling, I'm just wishing I could be with you again. Uh, right now. Sweet darling, I'm just wishing I could be with you again Somehow, somehow Sweet darling, I'm just wishing now I think I got the chords wrong, but that's the song. That's a sweet that's song, one, I do. That's one of my favorites on the album. Wesley, is there a Roy Orbison song that you think that you feel really captures him the best? <clears throat> well, that, that's a... Really good question. I mean, there's um, so many great it, ones. <laughs> and it, uh, the ones that I'll 
Well, like on a certain day, you know, may change a little. Um, but uh, the uh, uh, working for the man uh, is kind of true to life. I know mm-hmm. his father worked in the oil field all his life, and uh, dad went out there for a day, and in the afternoon sun got to him, I think he decided to go back to the guitar <laughs> but uh it's over i think has the prettiest lyrics uh and you can't always see all the imagery the first time you hear the song because there's a lot of things going on but uh it's a beautiful song and a good performance a but the lyrics song, in yeah. particular i really like and i t- i love it that it takes a while for its payoff to come you go through all this poetry, and then you finally get to it's over. You know, it's like it's really, really well done. I think. Roy, have you got a one that you think distills the essence of Roy Orbison? Well, the same way that my favorite changes nearly every day, and there's still something to to learn. You know, um, all the time, and uh, and I hear new things all the time. Uh, uh, on it's over, I really didn't re- realize when he says echoes to you. That's all. That's all that he was doing the echo. Mm-hmm. I thought it was just songwriting, that he was using syllables to fill up the time. I didn't realize he was doing, that's all, that's all, that's all. I didn't realize he was doing the echo. Or um, in, in Crying, when he says, you know, and you stopped, and the music stops. Right, to, to say, say hello. hello right. you know, and then I heard that later, and I think I recognized it in Macy Gray's song about 10 years ago before I recognized it in his. Uh-huh. You know, I heard it in, uh, you know, so you still hear that trick every two or three years, someone does that little trick. Um, but uh, running scared. If Wesley's taking it's over, then I'll take running scared as uh, as his greatest song. The great bolero. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Alex. Yep. And uh, I got to tell you, my favorite as a little kid was Candyman. Yes. I thought Candyman rocked. It yeah. does. It yeah. does. <laughs> yeah. Candyman and uh, Mean Woman Blues have this. The, the guitar is so obscenely loud. We did a box set that had all the original records through Sony two years ago, and like I've mixed some records, and to turn the guitar up that loud, it takes brass. I mean, they really were pushing <laughs> the envelope, and and you don't think about that. Uh, with with my dad's stuff because it was some of it was so rocking you know and, mm-hmm. and uh, in the sixty three uh, but so in dreams would be the the one and uh, I'm glad that uh, yeah I'm glad that I could even think of one after these guys um, <laughs> and my dad has a lot of songs that are great and one of the things was there was a period uh, so my dad formulated his sound with Joe Melson uh, who lives here in Gutlesville and. Uh, and then they parted ways. My dad was on his own and, and wrote some songs by himself. And In Dreams was this one that, that sums up a lot of his existence because he had, uh, he had written part of it at a candy-cuddled clown they call the Sandman and uh, I tiptoes to my room every night. And so he writes the, the first part and uh, goes to bed and literally dreams up the rest of the song has the pen and the paper by the bed and Mm -hmm. he said all songs are a gift but this one truly was a gift and he meant a gift from god like handed over Mm -hmm. on a silver platter it's it's too bad all these things can only happen in my dreams and beautiful dreams Mm -hmm. and so he writes this thing down and that's what he meant the good ones happen in three minutes and the bad ones take never you know (laughs) never a candy colored clown they call the sandman tiptoes to my room every night 
Just to sprinkle stardust and to whisper Go to sleep, everything is alright I think it's always interesting that no matter who the collaborator on the song was, mm-hmm. whether it was Melson or Deez or whoever it was, it's still a Roy Orbison song. Yeah, yeah. I mean, he's unquestionably the creative force in yeah, that song. Yeah, and, and those know? guys were like, had this, um, from what forensically I've been able to put together, have a shotgun style where they just throw out a ton of stuff and my dad would grab onto phrases or say, how about change this or whatever. Yeah, like I say, it doesn't matter who the collaborators listed, it's still Roy. I mean, yep. it's, it's yeah, unmistakably him. You know? Yeah. And, and when you try to play them uh, on uh, guitar, piano, or, or something, uh, they they always have a bar of two four or three four thrown in with the four four. Yep. Uh, the the only other artist I know like that is Johnny Cash. Johnny Cash and Roy songs are nearly impossible to play. You uh, you can't learn them. You have to know them. You have to experience it emotionally mm-hmm. as you play it, because trying to memorize only the lonely and sing it. Good luck. <laughs> <laughs> Although, you know, talk about covers. I mean, crying gets covered oh all God. the time. Yeah. yeah. You know, and yep. everybody. Well, only the Lonely is the, the hardest one to cover. It and, is hard. And Glenn, uh-huh. that's the first one he did. He took the, the hardest one. <laughs> and first. Linda Ronstadt brought, brought back Blue Bayou very effectively. Yeah. I, oh, I which love Which is that. also a hard mm-hmm. song. You know? yeah. yeah. Is your whole family musical, Ashley? I mean, when you have a dad that gifted, it, I would think it would pass down to more than just you. Are, are there other kids that... Yeah. There were several on the, when um, you, on the farewell tour. The whole band was just about kids, wasn't it? That's right, yeah. Real quick, I have Wichita now. Okay. I have it. Are you ready? Yeah. Yes. Okay. All right. I am a lineman for the county And I drive the main road Searching in the sun for another overload. I hear you singing in the wire. I can hear you through the wine. And the Wichita That's a hard song to play, too. <laughs> yeah, especially up this high without a mm-hmm. cut-out neck. Um, have to, so were, you, were you practicing in your head? I didn't notice any guitar being played. You just kind of thought yeah, about it. Yeah, I was... Figured, I was oh, yeah, there she it was is. She's getting that muscle memory back. <laughs> yeah, the out. muscle memory there. <laughs> like Einstein. We all, everybody has to take us out. We play, uh, Roy played uh, the riff on Pretty Women when we were starting out. We have to go out with that. Yeah. yeah. Let's rock oh. out with it. Oh, sure. Help us out, Wes. Yeah. <laughs>
Guys, thank you so much. Thank you. Really yeah, this, was. this has been uh, very touching for me personally. I'm asked to hear your story with your dad and uh, and to just think about our dad and through that window and uh, think about Uncle Grady and everything. It's been uh, it's been a weepy but wonderful experience for me. <laughs> so happy that you're playing now and doing some of those songs and the new ones too. It's really Thanks, terrific. Wes. <laughs> Get it. Come on, Ashley, finish this record. Uh, oh, it's almost finished. <laughs> it is almost finished. Truer words were never spoken. Ashley's solo album, The Lonely One, will be coming out in May, and the title track is out there now, so check it out. It should be a big hit. As for the Orbison boys, they're still busy solidifying Roy's legacy. Dreams, Roy Orbison in concert, is a hologram tour opening up in the UK next month. And next week, Texas legend Pat Green's in the house. Children of Song, the podcast everyone's talking about. Until next time, I'm Brad Newman. Thanks for listening. Cudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Cudlow Podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. Listen to Fox News Podcast shows ad-free on Fox News Podcast Plus, on Apple Podcasts, Amazon Music with your Prime membership, or follow wherever you get your podcasts.